music's good and has a platter of goodies to play today. Here's a man to Thank you very, very much, Artie Wayne, Starlighters, Lee Tony, I have and Company, and hi, how are you all? We are gathered once again here in the old Sanctum Sanctorum to bring you lots of good sounds, and we have a very special guest today, great columnist, and uh, hail fellow well met, a musician of some note over a period of long, long years, and we are going to retrogress terribly here to start off with, and we're going to play an old 78, and this is really an old 78, so you're liable to find uh, the quality a little less than that of... The second record, which is uh, the title tune of an album called Whisper Not by Ella Fitzgerald, also written by our special guest. And uh, the whole program should tickle you today because Leonard Feather's here. This is the old original shearing group with Life with Feather. <laughs> That's a pun. Constantly 
Love will whisper on eternally Uh, one taken from deep dark in the past. As a matter of fact, an old discovery disc called Life with Feather, featuring uh, George Shearing and company, and uh, also Whisper Not, the title tune of Ella's wonderful album, in which Lesnar had quite a hand. And uh, how are you doing, Pat? Huh? You all right? Well, thank you. That really brings back memories, that George Shearing record, because, you know, that was the, that was a session for which George and I organized the quintet. Right. George was working mm -hmm. with a quartet with Buddy DeFranco on clarinet. Mm -hmm. Buddy was under contract to Capitol Records, so we couldn't use him on Discovery Records. <laughs> so I said, well, how about getting a guitar and vibes? And I suggested Chuck Wayne and uh, Margie Hyams. Mm -hmm. And that evolved into the, the quintet format, and George liked the sound of it and decided to keep it together after the record date. Yeah, that's when he used to have the... Uh, what was it? I guess he had a... He was living just just got to New York, hadn't he? Actually? No, he'd been in New York a little what, over a year. A year about the time he'd been scuffling the first six months. Uh -huh. I couldn't get him a gig anywhere, and then uh -huh. finally I got him uh, some Fifty uh, Second uh, Street job at sixty six dollars a week. <laughs> the the uh, fame, no, the Three Deuces, I think it was. Oh. Yeah, working with the tree. How did you uh, How did you emigrate? Well, uh, I knew George. Um, I've been here longer than George. Yeah. Uh, I met him. Just before World War II, uh, when he came to a rhythm sec a rhythm club uh, session that I was organizing in London, and uh -huh. I, I came over here actually before that, but uh, I didn't mm -hmm. stay. I just went back and forth, sort of shuttling between between uh, England and here. But this became my spiritual home, you might say. <laughs> uh huh. And you've been here ever since. Yeah. Actually, and uh, George and I uh, happily are quite close neighbors now. He lives mm -hmm. in Toluca Lake, and I live in North Hollywood. Mm hmm. And so we see each other whenever he's in town, and uh, our families yeah. are close friends. Right, the terror of Toluca, yeah. as we call him, living on Navajo. Anyway, that's uh, right. We, uh, yeah, well, of course, George and I have known each other since 1935, so that goes back a spell. 35? How about that? When he was playing in a terrible pub down the street. Good an awful place over in this London. This is the first time I ever met anybody that knew George before I did. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was going to school over there at the time. Was working with the BBC and some things on loan from the CBC, and uh, we had, uh, were using scanning discs at that time and doing some things out of the Crystal Palace in experimental television. You know something? That's an interesting thing. You should bring that up, Bill, because for a while uh, I had a weekly column on the London Radio Times, and for a while I was assigned to edit the television supplement. Now that is interesting because it was about. Ten years before they had really full-fledged television in the United States, you mm -hmm. know, they were way ahead of America in mm -hmm. presenting television on, a, on an organized basis, uh, two or three hours a day, to the uh, British public. Mm -hmm. And they had a very elaborate Rotary Viewer television supplement. 
And this was, uh, you know, uh, maybe 1937 or 8, something like that. Right, it would be, because they had uh, they were doing these test shows all the time. But they weren't test shows, they were official well, programs. Well, actually, they were official programs, yeah. but actually Bernie Braden and a whole bunch of us uh, came over, and it was uh, following that uh, during the war that Robert Farnon actually made his first trips over mm -hmm. and then finally stayed there. Right. Know? And took over the world. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to some of Feather's wonderful stuff here. I want to get into the Encyclopedia of Jazz, the Blues. This is Volume One on Verve, which uh, is a companion to a rather complete work of literature that Leonard has turned out, and we'll discuss that too. Let's uh, first play the St. Louis Blues, which is rather well done in here. It's an Oliver Nelson arrangement, and then uh, we'll chat with Leonard because there's a thing following that that I'd like to discuss with him in depth.
Encyclopedia of Jazz in the 60s, Volume 1, The Blues, and certainly the St. Louis Blues, W.C. Handy's great tune. Uh, I think you mentioned in your notes here that uh, Ollie had never arranged, he comes from St. Louis and never arranged this tune before. That's right. Album. Never before arranged the St. Louis Blues, and he's from St. Louis. And that was Joe Newman playing, of course, the trumpet mm -hmm. solo. Uh-huh. Beautiful solo. He sure does a good job. This next thing that's in here, Leonard, is uh, a thing that I've always been very fond of. I think you wrote it, though, early in 60 for Viared. That's right. Gal saxophone player. That's right. If memory serves me correctly, who... Uh, Not many people know that, because yeah. that album didn't get around. No, it didn't get around too much, but uh, there were guys like Don Otis and uh, myself, who I think uh, a few around town who still... Uh, dug good things and uh, those things came to light and Vi uh, was playing here not too long ago down uh, that's uh, right. near she's the Coliseum been, somewhere she'd been in out of town that's right she's and luckily she finally got a break this girl to me is a wonderful singer and a very fine saxophonist and she's going to be at the Newport Jazz Festival this year for the first time oh great so she finally got her break oh that's and wonderful and she does remember Bird I mean, uh -huh. she really yeah. has that feeling yeah you uh these things that, that you've written over a period of years, uh, how did you actually get into the composition field? Is this where it started with you before you reviewed, or how? I, yeah, I think I was writing music and, and playing uh, rather incompetent piano for a brief time before I got into writing about music. Mm -hmm. That was for the London Melody Maker. Mm -hmm. And I always have continued. Uh, I've kept up on my writing, if not on my playing. Uh, once in a while, if I've had a couple of drinks, I'll sit in with somebody and play the blues at Shelley's Manhole, but I don't feel like a professional musician, uh, mm -hmm. except if I'm playing some funky blues, then I can maybe make it. Uh -huh. But uh, I did really uh, concentrate on uh, composing music and lyrics for a number of years, and I was lucky a few times. You know, I had Dinah Washington's big blues hits, right. Evil Gal Blues, right. and Salty Papa Blues. In fact, uh, Joe Williams revived Evil Gal as Evil Man Blues mm -hmm. last year, you know. Right. David a new lease on life, and uh -huh. Aretha Franklin helped it some too. How about the uh, the actual writing of this particular thing called "I Remember Bird"? Well, the reason for that one, Bill, was that I, I it struck me as very strange and very unfair that uh, no composition had ever been dedicated to the memory of Charlie Parker, Bird, uh -huh. uh, who uh, to me was one of the greatest musicians of the last generation. I think uh, there were tunes written for. Uh, Clifford Brown, who was a, another very fine musician, mm -hmm. and uh, for other people who had passed on, but strangely enough, there had never been anything uh, dedicated to Charlie Parker, and I felt since we were doing a session of songs all associated with Charlie Parker for mm -hmm. Byred, mm -hmm. that uh, I would compose one that uh, that had this title and that was really uh, conceived in the spirit, uh, which I felt corresponded with the way I felt about him and possibly the way he might have played it. You know? mm -hmm. Well, I thought Phil Woods uh, outdid himself a little. Oh, yes. This version that Phil Woods plays with, with uh, the Encyclopedia Jazz All-Stars is, to my way of thinking, one of the great alto solos of the last few years. Well, I'm with you 100%, and we're about to prove it. Why don't you just take a listen to it? This is Leonard Feather's composition, I Remember Bird, featuring Oliver Nelson's arrangement from the Encyclopedia of Jazz, a magnificent soggy reed. It belongs to Mr. Phil Woods.
Leonard Feathers, our special guest, and you're listening to the Bill Stewart Show coming your way from the Hollywood studios of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Feathers, our special guest, Bill Stewart, with you here in our that's what we call this uh, magic place in which we are highly guarded and cleverly concealed deep in the room whence we emanate all may be. We, uh, we're going to, I think it's a question that uh, considerable thought, maybe did it actually take you to compile that encyclopedia companion to that magnificent book that you've written? Well, main books. I, I mm -hmm. put out the first encyclopedia of Jet. That took a couple of years to pay that knowledge all through the years right. that I had mm -hmm. been acquiring uh, mm -hmm. my, uh, just and uh, then I put out another one in 19th called the New Encyclopedia of Jazz mm -hmm. five I began to see that uh, events were happening in sort of place that I couldn't keep pace books so uh, I uh, and I really could have used the whole staff but uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> it yeah. was difficult to to uh, divide up the work I had to do most of it myself what I now call the Encyclopedia of Jazz in the 60s mm -hmm. the, all the earlier people right. biographies of people that have come up 
things go at the present pace during the 1970s, uh, I'll, I'll need to hire a whole core of writers. I won't be able to do the job myself. I'll just have to edit. Uh-huh. How, how do you uh, actually uh, go about pacing yourself? Because you write for the Los Angeles Times consistently. You write for Downbeat and many other pair uh, uh, I think <laughs> liner notes. <laughs> it seemed that way, but actually, uh, I, uh, for such a ex- mm-hmm. well, the Los Angeles Times is my uh, most time-consuming commitment. Three concerts, or of course, local review in the Los Angeles Times in the L.A. Times, Washington, about 200 papers all over the I world. See. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, that, as I say, time-consuming. For Downbeat, I do the blindfold tests, as you know, and, mm-hmm. and a few other features from time to time. No, so you had a new one on Guarneri in the recent issue. That's right. That's. Uh-huh. Uh, there is a great musician who's just made a rather unusual comeback. He's now playing everything in 5-4. Five, 5-4, four. Five, four, though. Huh. So, no, I don't find it that difficult to uh, divide my time up because huh. uh, when I get down to writing, I, I write fairly fast. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as the music is concerned, I have busy with many other things. I uh, was very interested in, uh, of course, I think that you are one of the uh, thing that has got to me uh, over a period in the last few years are the reviews that have consistently been coming out where uh, I used to PhD named Barry Ulanov on a whole another but uh, the piece of the performance is no good in Downbeat oh, yeah. uh, as recently as in the last four months and you are a very uh, honest reviewer which I like and I, I thought Thank you took you. Uh, Basie to task very beautifully recently for doing too many things and none of them well yes well you know something <laughs> some of the guys in the Basie band agree with me uh-huh. I think that they would. Yeah, well, uh, I talked to one of the musicians who has been in and out of the Basie band several times. I won't embarrass him by name, mm-hmm. but uh, he said, uh, you told it like it is. Uh, mm-hmm. Basie really should try to find himself because uh, right now he's lost in all these different ventures that don't seem to represent any kind of music at its best. No. And uh, I am one of the greatest admirers of Basie through the years, but when no. I think of the fantastic band that he had at one time, and then I see how sort of lethargic the whole thing has become. In other words, the solos are just solos. They get up and blow, and it doesn't really mean anything. They don't, they don't seem to care. With one or two exceptions. Mm-hmm. I like Eddie Lockjaw Davis, mm-hmm. but uh, he keeps leaving the band and coming back and leaving <laughs> and coming back. Uh, I, I just think Count has, has been in the business a long, long time, and maybe uh, he's... I won't say he's completely lost interest, but he naturally can't be expected to have the youthful enthusiasm that he had at one time. Uh, we can't all be Duke Ellingtons and, and uh, never grow up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Duke is the youngest band leader in the world. Isn't that the it's truth? Incredible. And the hardest to live with, because as soon as he finishes a job, he wants to travel to the next one right then and sleep yeah. when he gets there. Oh, this, this man <laughs> is absolutely unbelievable. I... I'm many years younger than Duke, and I could not possibly keep his pace for one day. Uh-huh. He really rambles on. Let's play some more things that Mr. Feather has had a hand in, and I'll tell you what they are twixt them.
Albert Nelson conducting the Leonard Feather All-Stars from the Encyclopedia of Jazz, Volume 1, Blues in the 60s. And uh, we're about to continue from the same set before we continue our chat. Here's Julie Bill Stewart, the sign of the microphonic. And this is uh, Count Basie's contribution to the entire session, which is a very interesting one, too. A beautiful blues called Blues for Eileen. <laughs>
more of the good music that Leonard Feathers had a hand in, and he's our special guest. Leonard, what do you find is the toughest thing about actually reviewing consistently as you're doing? Where you have to review, in many instances, the same organization, uh, maybe two or three times a year for one thing or another. Well, that is a slight problem. You have to find new angles, uh, new aspects of the music to consider, or else you just don't do it. You know, sometimes I will discuss it with the editor of the Los Angeles Times, and I will say, well, we've had enough about him lately. Let's just skip it, because mm -hmm. there's nothing new to say. Uh, but in answer to your question, the toughest thing, and I was talking about this with a friend of mine yesterday, is having to review somebody whom you've come to know as a personal friend, like uh, you, you, you like mm -hmm. him very much as a human being, and uh, your wife has become friendly with his wife, you know. Mm -hmm. So he's not just a musician, he's a friend. Then you go and see him give a bad performance. Yeah. And you have to write about it. That is th really the hardest thing. Because yeah, because you have to... You've got to be honest with your readers, mm -hmm. with the public, and yet at the same time try to avoid offending the artist. Mm -hmm. And I've had some very tough battles with my conscience <laughs> over that. I imagine that would be a difficult thing to do. It's almost the same as editorializing on the air about people you've known for years, because uh, both right. of us have ridden a bus at one time or another, yeah. or the iron lung, as we call it, in fond memory. Well, it goes back to that Basie thing we were talking about. Uh, I was really disturbed that Basie would be very mad at me about the piece when mm -hmm. I put the band on. You know what happened? The following week, he called me up from Las Vegas, and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he called to apologize to me for not having been over to my table to see me when I was at the club that night. He didn't say one <laughs> thing about... He, he was not the least bit disturbed about uh -huh. the article. I think uh -huh. he felt I had a right to my opinion, and uh -huh. that is my idea of a really uh, delightful human being, somebody yeah. that can take criticism and, and not get into a tangle with you over it. You know? Some years ago, you did a whole bunch of things called uh, that have been reissued by RCA in the Esquire uh, All-Star Jazz Series, uh -huh. and uh, an awful lot of your compositions is involved therein. Do you have any favorites? Yes, I, uh, I enjoyed making those sessions very much because we were working with the, the cream of the crop uh, as far as instrumentalists are concerned. And uh, My favorite composition is a thing I wrote called Low Flame. Mm -hmm. It was on a Coleman Hawkins date, but Coleman Hawkins is not featured on this particular track. We had a, a wonderful, underrated alto player named Pete Brown, who was one of my very favorite musicians. Mm -hmm. He has an alto solo. And another great underrated musician is Mary Osborne. Yes, a very fine player. On guitar. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me see. I guess that's just about it on this track. And it's, mm -hmm. uh, plus the, the theme, which is basically a 12-bar blues with rather different uh, harmonic construction. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Pete played wonderfully and Mary played very well on this. And uh, it's it's one of my favorites of the mm -hmm. notes that I made. With and you also had a thing called Buck and the Blues in there, didn't you, with... Uh, Yes. A couple uh, of trumpet players involved. Yeah, Buck and the Blues was on a different date, but also uh, featuring Esquire Award winners, uh, starting out with Buck Clayton himself, for whom the number was named. And then we had a guitar solo um, by uh, an old friend of mine, John Collins, who is now with the Bobby Troop Trio. Yeah, right. As with Nat Cole for years. Mm -hmm. That's right, he was in that Cole for about 15 years. Mm -hmm. And then the, on the last chorus, the trumpet is not by Buck Clayton, it is by Charlie Shavers, who led the ensemble on that uh -huh. day. Huh. Let's play both of them. Right. From the Esquire All-Star Sessions, supervised by Leonard and written by Mr. Feather. This is Low Flame and then Buck and the Blues.
Low Flame, played by the Esquire All-Stars, the great reissue set on RCA Victor, and we're about to buck the blues here with Buck Clayton and Charlie Shavers, both featured, Buck first up, and as Leonard mentioned, Mr. Shavers takes the last chorus. Just about run out of time for today, and uh, well, you're still in town, and uh, the times hasn't got you roped totally. Can you uh, ramble back in tomorrow, and we'll do this again? I'd be very happy to, Bill. All right, we'll pick it up there, right where we left off. Mm-hmm. 
Squire All-Star is welling up a storm there in the background. A little jumping for Jane. Other Leonard's compositions, led by Coleman Hawkins in this particular instance, that just about do it for today. Leonard, as he said, will be back with us again tomorrow, and we are looking forward to it. In the interim, we thank you one and all for your time. Bill Stewart's this side of the microphonic, reminding you, one and all, wherever you may be, to kindly keep your powder dry. Do not blow your cool, and never forget that this is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service.